This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Welcome to Money is Not Evil podcast, the show where you will be inspired to change your life. So our special guest is Ginny Rometty, who is, as I said, the chairman and CEO of IBM. Uh, it's a position she assumed uh, initially as the CEO in January 1 of 2012 and also became the chairman uh, in, in October 1 of 2012, now chairman and CEO. Um, IBM is obviously a company that everybody's familiar with. Uh, it's a company whose roots go back to, let's say, 1911. Uh, it took the name IBM, or International Business Machines, in 1924. The company with a market capitalization of about $160 billion and has a revenue of about $100 billion, earns about $16.5 billion in net income, and has 431,000 employees, which is the fourth largest private employer in the United States. Um, Ginny uh, went to, grew up in Chicago and uh, went to Northwestern, where she was uh, an en a major in engineering and computer sciences, and initially joined General Motors, and then two years later, 1981, she joined uh, in Detroit, IBM, as a systems engineer. And then uh, it, she joined later and really started in, in the 1991 the consulting business of IBM and ultimately led its acquisition of the uh, PwC uh, consulting business, which later became IBM Services. And later she became, um, in 2009, the senior vice president for sales, marketing, and strategy for IBM and then, of course, in 2012, took the position she currently has. Obviously, running IBM is a, very much a full-time job, but Ginny does do some other things on the outside. She's a member of the Board of Trustees of her alma mater, Northwestern, and also on the Board of uh, Sloan Kettering, among other things that she does. So, Ginny, thank you very much for coming this morning. Um, so, let me that, just... That was my life in a really right, short okay. period. Well, <laughs> so, uh, let me uh, just start by asking you this. Uh, Today, there are, I think, about 24 women who are CEOs of Fortune 500 companies. And there are three women who are uh, members of Augusta. Uh, which took more work to, <laughs> um, to, to get into? Uh, what was harder to get into, the CEO or I, I, I think you just, I, I worked a lifetime to become the CEO of IBM. Okay. And Augusta? <laughs> uh, okay. So recently, you were on the cover of Fortune magazine, and the cover said, um, can IBM ever be cool? And is it your goal to make IBM cool? And is it cool? Yeah, well, I think, you know, this is, uh, for those, not that anyone would have seen that always, but uh, I got a lot of notes from folks inside who said, we are cool. And uh, I, I think it depends how you define cool. So if you think uh, running 90% of the banks in the world, 80% of the airlines, 60% of all the transactions in business is cool, then we're cool. And I think if you think changing the face of healthcare is cool, then we're cool. Reinventing education, we're cool. And uh, I saw a great statistic that I think most people wouldn't guess. We had a couple thousand um, internships this past uh, summertime, and I saw that there were one million applicants for them. So to me, that says you're cool. 
And the best way to get one of those internships is to call you directly, or how? No. <laughs> are you are you applying? No, like some children we might do, be interested. We do not but, uh, discriminate, okay. Eddie. <laughs> so, but in other words, what you're saying is, um, you know, you often read that people, uh, young kids coming out of very good schools, want to go to Google or Facebook or uh, similar companies. IBM is competitive with them. You know, this is a another not just internships. I happen to because I look at those stats every every month. Uh, as an example, um, again, our consulting business, which is largest in the world, uh, every kid we hired turned down three other job offers to come to us. So I think that that says that says a okay. lot. So um, today, uh, define for us what IBM really is, because you do hardware. People have an image of IBM that they make these large mainframe computers, but you do many other things. But you consider yourself a hardware company, a software company, a services company, or or so what? let me ask you a question first. I mean, okay. <laughs> let me ask you a few questions. Um, so what, you might know the answer though, David, because you're, you're very well schooled on us, but what percentage would you guess of our company is hardware? Well, I assume it's going to be a smaller percentage than normal <laughs> than I, than people. I, right. <laughs> so there's a very important part of hardware that we do, but uh, in fact, actually, it's been an interesting year, but uh, as the year closes and we go into next year, Hardware will be less than 10% of the IBM company. Really? And I think people have a, a vision, and it's almost, I think it's symbolic of what is IBM's hallmark, which is about continuously reinventing itself to what is the next most higher value thing. And so if you just look at the number across the top, it isn't as if it's still 100 billion of the same things anymore. And to me, this is really important. And that's why I think most people, hardware is a very important thing, very important. And what we've done is focus on the kind of hardware, which, by the way, you know, runs all those banks and airlines and everything that is the most secure, the highest throughput, most reliable, et cetera. Um, but it is now less than 10%. And in fact, the company has morphed over this time 30% uh, software services. And if you ask me, you know, well, what is IBM today, I would tell you, and this is an important word, it's an enterprise solutions company. Because there are consumer companies out there, and I think it's important to know what you are. We are an enterprise company that sells to enterprises, and they serve the consumer. Okay. So you do have 431,000 employees. That's a lot of employees to be responsible for. Um, one of your competitors, HP, um, decided they were going to hive off one of their businesses. Uh, would you consider you know, splitting off part of the company because it's just so big, or you're, that isn't something you would consider? You know, you know what, it isn't about size, it's about the value you provide, right? And uh, again, back to this thought, this one notion, which I think in many ways is underappreciated, this the idea that you constantly move your portfolio to higher value. So, you know, you and I were talking earlier, I think one of the things, I've worked for some great people uh, in this company, and uh, one of the things they taught me was, you always steward for the long term. And if you steward for the long term, that means that you adjust the portfolio constantly. And so I would say we already, we take care of any portfolio, we do it on a continuous basis. And so uh, we would, over the last decade, we've added 150 companies. And over the last, my tenure, actually even just this year, I will have divested of $7 billion of revenue for IBM that lost a half a billion dollars. So it's that constant, we constantly prune and change that portfolio on our own, and I think that that's our job as stewarding the company and returning high value to our shareholders. So one of the leaders that you work for is somebody that uh, you know. I know well, Lou Gerstner. Yeah. Um, so what was that like? He's an easy guy to work for, is that right? Yeah, that, absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. I, look, I, uh, I 
I, in, in all seriousness, I've had the great pleasure, because um, I worked under Lou and under Sam both, right? And uh, I, I always say what I've learned in my tenure, my you know, couple decades now at IBM, uh, I say I've learned don't protect your past, don't define yourself as a product, and you always steward this company for the long term. And you know that if you keep those three things in your mind, you will take great comfort in many of the decisions you make, regardless of what people think about them. So and I learned many of those from them. So you went to Northwestern. At the time, uh, did you ever think you would want to join IBM or be a, in a large computer company or enterprise services company? And what did you think you were going to do when you graduated from college? You actually yeah. went to work for General Motors initially. I, I, I did, actually. And, and that's, I think, um, as this is something I tell so many of our young people, and that um, you mentioned I'm an engineer. I am a big believer that in the next, I think, decade in America, every student is going to have to have some kind of STEM background, right? Science, technology, engineering, math, something like that for America to be competitive. And when I went into it back then, and back then there were many times I would have been the only woman in a class. You know, I'll often meet colleagues that'll say, you know, don't you remember me? We sat next to each other. And I'm like, I don't. And they're like, well, there was one of you and many of us. And uh, so I, uh, in that time frame, there were not many women in engineering at all. And uh, people say, well, why did you go into engineering? And, and my really strong advice for anyone, and, and my nieces, my nephews, it's all about, I think what it taught me was how to solve problems. That's, and I think if you, you don't have to be a practicing engineer even. The idea that engineering does that is teach it, teaches you how to problem solve, which I'll get to your question then of how did I end up where this was. But this problem solving, to me, then kind of prepares you to do anything. And that's why when I first went to General Motors, um, GM was a great company, and I, they had had a program at that time, don't have it now, but it was, uh, they had had scholarships for folks to get women into engineering and had gone to some of the top schools, and no strings attached. I mean, they did a great job helping me through Northwestern. And I, so I worked there a few years, but the answer to that question is, what I really wanted to do was apply technology, and I could do it in many industries at IBM, but and have you, many careers. But when you joined IBM, surely you didn't think in those days that you could rise up to be the CEO? Oh, of course not. Because I mean, that, no, but you know what? I. Um, I certainly came from, my mom raised, raised me and my brothers and sisters. We came from a single mom. I mean, she taught us all we could be whatever we wanted to be. And you could do and don't even think about it that way. So um, I think like many people who are successful in this room, it wasn't about, you know, one day I'm going to do this. It was everything you did, you just thought about how well you could do it, and then you did the next thing. So, but do you think women to rise up have to be twice as smart and work twice as hard as men, or just 50 percent? <laughs> I think everybody works hard. <laughs> I do. Um, I think the, the biggest recommendation that I give to, uh, it, it's actually to many young women, but I think it applies to everyone. Um, I was just giving it to my nephew this past weekend in college. I told him, you know, growth and comfort never coexist, and you have to get used to that thought. Because whether you are a person, a company, or a country, if you're going to grow, you are going to have to do things that put you at risk. And so, that's, to me, the biggest advice I would give anyone about moving forward. Man, woman, doesn't matter, is that thought. So, by the way, uh, people must ask you all the time, what devices do you use? I mean, you, you're head of a large technology company. Do you use a smart, what is your smartphone? What is your I have all of them. What, you have yeah, everything. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, okay. yeah, I do. And, and this, is, <laughs> this is why these guys are all growing. Um, so. This is, uh, 
I do, I do, and of course we have, I have my sh share of Apple devices. We have a great partnership with Apple as well, and uh, that we even talk about. So I think I find, like many of you, I use different devices for different things. So let's talk about Apple for a moment. Um, IBM was a company that maybe did a lot of things on its own, and since you've come in, you've had a lot of partnerships with yeah. a lot of companies. Let's talk about Apple. Yeah. Um, people were probably surprised that you are now selling iPads to your corporate customers, is that more or less right? Yeah, although that's a very tiny piece of it, okay. is what? that uh, the iPad. Um, can I back up just one sure. second to give it context, and then uh, I think it's a really great symbolic uh, and important partnership. Um, back up to this idea that we're constantly changing. So I, as I said to you, IBM is a solution company. So as a solution company, uh, right now there are a couple big shifts in the industry. They're transforming my industry, and I would challenge everybody in here, they're transforming yours. And if you think they're not, you're missing something. Um, they're going to reorder every industry, including my own. And uh, the shifts are around, the, the words you hear, the buzzwords you hear all the time, around big data, around cloud, and around social and mobile. For us, it's a strategy that I'll then lead to, to where Apple fits in this. But the strategy for us is, we believe when it comes to business, that all that big data is going to end up being, I call it a natural resource. Uh, it'll be the basis of competition. I know we work with many of you, actually, I know the companies, that um, it will be what separates winners and losers, how you do predictive analytics and how you use it. We have big businesses, in fact, last year, $16 billion around that. Big transformation around data, big transformation around the cloud, which is to help enterprises move into the era of cloud. Um, we're rated the number one cloud provider by IDC. We can come back to that. And then number three is social, mobile, and security. I want to add the word security changes the way people engage. And the reason I want to tell you those three strategies, it leads now to these partnerships. Because if you're a solution company, A, you don't do everything by yourself. Um, and B, if you never define yourself as a product, you're always focused on what is the solution you create. So with the partnership with Apple, is one of now four what I consider sort of very strategic partnerships that are all around IBM as an enterprise platform for that future I just described. So with Apple, really if I can kind of boil it down, the view was together we could reimagine how work was done. Most people who if you have your devices, uh, when it comes to doing serious business in your company, statistics are 60% use it for email and calendaring, 70% are afraid to do things way more sophisticated in real work process because of security. So we knew there was an itch. We, I'll talk about some of the apps coming out. So the partnership with Apple was to reimagine work. Then we announced a partnership with Twitter, which was really kind of the view that every decision you make, every business decision could be improved at the voice of the consumer. And so we'll be taking all that into, into business decision making, which is very hard to do just with all that data sitting out there as it is. And then in cloud, two partnerships, both SAP and Tencent in China, which as you know, Tencent is huge in China and we are the cloud selected partner to take to small medium business. So these are all about providing a certain solution so, of which so, Apple's one. Um, do you call up uh, Tim Cook and say we want to do a partnership or does he call you? How, when yeah, the well, CEO we, of IBM calls, people usually listen I assume. But yeah, it's a, you know, no, we've, um, we've, uh, Tim and I have gotten to know each other. Um, I was telling David, Tim, Tim uh, worked for IBM for 12 years early in his career and uh, we've gotten to know each other through some other things and, uh, and the more we talked, the two companies are extremely complementary. And I think um, 
what's been most, in, you know, I think to both of our pleasure has been to watch the sets of engineers with great respect for each other, both realizing they know something different. And uh, Apple certainly, I think many people would say a gold standard for consumability, usability, ease. And we on the other side, all around, okay now, we're not only gonna make that secure, that application has to do real work and therefore it's gotta connect into all these systems of the world. So my perfect kind of uh, example, I, I just saw there'll be a dozen coming out in about a week here of the first apps with partners. And uh, one of my favorite ones that I think is so illustrative of this partnership is there's the one for the flight attendant. That, um, so if you go on, if you're on a plane and you're gonna have a connection and your connection, you know you're gonna be late, it's delayed, what happens to most people? What do, what do you do? You're up in the air and you know you're gonna miss your connection. What do you do? Scream. Scream, okay, that would be, that would be you. Okay, what else? Others? The kinder, gentler? You ask, yeah, they tell you you're late and then what do you do? Okay, so, and then when you get off the plane, what do you do? You, you run to the, yeah, right? To, and, and then someone does this for about 15 minutes. And then, and, and then while you're waiting in line, you're calling and booking duplicate reservations and all sorts of things. And so um, the first app, which is one of the apps for a flight, and just think, why can't someone come up to you on the plane and say, um, really, Mr. David, look, you're one of our top flyers. Here's your two choices. Pick it, hit the button, and I've sent your boarding pass to your phone, and you're all set for when we land. Right? That would be right. nice. Is that going to happen? It, well, yeah, that's going right. to And so, <laughs> <laughs> for you. <laughs> um. So, but technically, to think about what's required, you might think that's easy. But the technicality of what's required, the certain kind of satellite you can use right. up in the air to be sure that that can be done, and then all the connections into those systems. Yet, you can't have a flight attendant doing this for... It's got to be two buttons to get this done. So to me, it's, a, it's a, one of the great examples. We were, I was just with one of the big telcos, and it's a field utility app for their folks out in the field. There's a whole set of them coming. And that's, that's to me, reimagining work um, with the combination of the two companies. We talk about cloud computing. Um, uh, IBM famously build, used to build these big machines, and then people, And still do. And still do, but and you also have people who help you figure out how to use the machines. Yep. Now, cloud computing is something that maybe will obsolete some of that or not? I, look, I, um, I, no, the clouds still do run on hardware. Do, right, they they right, actually right. have to run somewhere. Right. Um, I, but people so don't have to buy the hardware necessarily. You have to buy, that's right. And uh, so it's whether you share it, whether you use it. So right. here's, um, for everybody who thinks about, you know, my simple definition of cloud, I think, which is helpful, is that it's any, it's any IT or process that runs as a service. That's what it is. And if you're a company, again, um, what's happening right now? Actually, new applications being built, 90% are being built in the cloud, and 70% of companies are doing something hybrid, which I'll come back and describe. Now, why? So you said, why, why will people go? The biggest thing, all these things have a, re a business reason to me, and the business reason is it does offer you agility and speed. And for many things you do, that is what you need. And so what you will find most people when we say 90% is building, if you're building something net new, you're building it out in a cloud technology, it's because yes, fast, and you'll find customer facing, typically a lot of customer facing things people are building, building there. And then you'll find they often, and there's a great similarity to the way the internet evolved. Because when the internet, some people would remember, uh, came to be, you might remember words like browser wars and counting eyeballs and how many things people looked at. 
And then someone said, you know, and that someone you know said, you know, people are going to want to do very serious business things. And that was the birth of e-business. And that was certainly one of Lou Gerstner's greatest contributions to IBM was around e-business. And the idea was, instead of just looking, I'm going to want to connect that back to the things I already have so I can buy, do manufacturing, supply chain, pricing, demand fulfillment. And that birthed a whole industry for IBM, by the way, called middleware. Now you come to cloud. If you're a company, most companies, when they look at cloud, they're doing three things. They're saying, some things I'm going to do on my premise, and that's a private cloud. Some I'm going to do what you said, externally, a public cloud, and then I'm going to connect the two together. That's hybrid. So the world of cloud is those three things. People will do it to become more agile, and, uh, and, and it, is a, it is a good thing. So in some ways, you'll do new things. Some things will get replaced. And in the end, the picture is going to be that whole picture. To get into cloud and to get more aggressively involved in it, you bought uh, SoftLayer. Mm -hmm. And um, do you feel that you had to buy something because you weren't yet ready no, to be uh, a player in cloud? That is a good question. Because actually, um, we've done in, in cloud, we've done 17 acquisitions in total. Uh, in big data analytics, we've done uh, maybe over, maybe almost 35 right now. And what that kind of the reason I set up, when you hear a lot of discussion about cloud, IBM had done a lot of work in private cloud, hybrid, how to connect, and what software was was a public cloud. So it was a missing of the three pieces, it was a missing piece, and that's what we okay. chose to go buy. And, uh, and they were the largest privately held, in your world, privately held uh, cloud, highly successful. They run many, I can't remember now, I don't know, 20, 30, 40,000 startups. They, many of the companies who you would know, you know, we run. The little company, almost, I can't remember what percentage of apps on your phone are actually running on that. So um, how do you instill an entrepreneurial culture in a company as big as yours? Because a lot of the, these new technological developments come from small companies, but you're a big one. So how do you yeah. get entrepreneurs to thrive in your atmosphere? Yeah. Well, you know, th this is, um, I think, for everybody in the room, um, this topic about agility and speed in a company, you know, if, if, if there's a silver bullet, that's, if you ever want to have one, that's what it is. And how you do it is you provide, you know, many people call it an agile working. I was just at a, a big, a big, uh, a big bank, let's just say, a week ago, talking about all their agile teams around the world, right, and what they were doing for, uh, to increase that sort of way things are done. Because we're all in this world where you want to build things, test them, modify, this agile, technology calls it DevOps world. And that's how you set the teams up. And it's in fact part why, in some cases, David, I went ahead and this year, Watson, we set up an, a brand new division, right? We haven't done a brand new division in probably 20 years. Set up a brand new division and uh, entrepreneurial, that's one way to do it, is give something, you know, it, it's all of its own pieces, let it go. Uh, so I've integrated some units to do that. The other is by via practices, this idea of agile and DevOps right. in how you let people operate. Let's talk about Watson. Why did you name it Watson, not Gerstner? <laughs> it is uh, built on decades, okay. decades right. of technology. So for those who may not know, Watson is a, let's say a computer, was a computer that uh, went on Jeopardy, I guess, and beat whoever the best Jeopardy person yeah. was, right? But how did you take that uh, computer that beat somebody on Jeopardy and make it into a whole business? And what does Watson actually do? This is. Um, this is to me one of the important, most important things maybe in the morning I'll talk about that. Um, I want to back up a second. What we did with Watson in 2011, it's by the way a cloud service, by the way now, um, that was just very symbolic. 
What it actually is, it's the very first, really, instantiation of something the world calls cognitive computing. So if you go back in time, the very first in, in the whole era of computing were machines that just counted things, tabulating. Abacuses, and they moved up from there. They counted. The next, everything you know today is programmable. You must tell it what to do. Somebody's told it what to do. It's programmable. Everything, big, little, doesn't matter. This is the first genre of machines that they learn. And so what Watson actually, you don't, Watson people say, oh, is it a big super search engine? Is it a Q&A? Does it look things up? No, it learns. And so it actually has a learning curve. Like a, It has a learning curve. So what does it mean by it learns? It, it operates like our brain does. You ingest, it ingests lots of information, which we will come back and talk about you know, what it's done in healthcare and in cancer, ingests a lot, and then it learns over time what's right and wrong and makes correlations. So like you and I make decisions, it forms though hundreds of thousands of hypotheses at one time, and then it goes and looks for all the data to prove them right or wrong, and statistically over time, the reasoning gets better and worse with the data, and it comes up with answers with percentage of confidence and the evidence of what it believes. So it's not about just an answer, and, and this is really important in things like healthcare. And that's what a learning machine does. So just kind of picture that happening, though, at lightning speed all at one time. And what we chose to do was show it first doing something pretty simple like Jeopardy, right? Oh, I should say simple. Not really. Those two guys that were the uh, winners, they're like superhuman. And their ability to answer questions and, you know, ring the little buzzer, get in, it's your brain is a fantastically, as many of you know, what it can operate on in low power it's able to operate on. And so, but what Watson had to do was open domain. I mean, he didn't get the questions ahead of time, right? So had to be able to, and what you watched on TV said he would show his percent confidence and he'd only buzz in when he was certain confidence. So that was years ago, 2011. We have fast forward to now, whole different, I mean, we've set off in the commercialization and now this is actually quite serious of what we've done and we took an approach that said, first off, could you transform an industry? And I will, I will always remember the first work we did in healthcare because uh, I will always remember having met the first client we did the work with after we'd gotten some of the first work uh, achieved. And I thought to myself, you know, we are going to really, we are going to transform healthcare with this. Th this is going to transform healthcare as you and I know it. And, and I will explain You're in one second. Right Kettering? now, not only at Sloan Kettering, and we just rolled out to the largest private health facility in Southeast Asia where one million patients will be treated with the kind of protocols NSK has. And so this idea that this machine, we could transform healthcare. So as an example, it's been fed in the areas of, uh, well, let me, let me just back up one second if you don't mind. In healthcare, Memorial Sloan Kettering, the cancer center, has worked on the hard, hard cancers, like you know, hard tumor cancers, like lung and the like. Uh, MD Anderson started with leukemia. Uh, Mayo Clinic helping use Watson to do clinical trial matching. Cleveland Clinic to teach doctors and then to see if it could go broader. So just what I just rattled off, if you, those of you in medicine, the idea that five institutions like that would cooperate for long periods of time on this, I think speaks everything you need to know about what the promise is. So what they have now gotten to the point is uh, it's called the uh, Oncology Advisor, uh, done with the best doctors in the world at MSK, and there are other great cancer centers, of course, but uh, it is now to the point where understands, can read medical records, pulls all the pertinent data, has been fed all of the information from every journal of medicine, hundreds of textbooks, every journal, every edition, 12 
million pages of evidence and has then been trained by the world's best doctors now. And as I said, that's about to roll out for one million patients. It's, it's underway right now in, uh, in Asia. So now you're taking the Watson group and putting them in a different kind of office setting and a different kind of uh, office environment. We did, very symbolically. So we it's did. going to be like people in Silicon Valley, is that right? We, we, we very, very symbolically chose the headquarters for Watson to be in uh, Silicon Alley, uh, which is in, uh, in New York, at 51 Astor. And because not all good ideas come from one place in the world. And so this is, we're very clear about, in this kind of big building pops up in the middle, lots of other startups in, uh, are around it, uh, and that's where it's located. And so in addition to healthcare, I should say, we have now gone on in uh, Watson's ability to do advising. And in fact, you know, uh, Walter Isaacson writes about this, and those of you who read the new book on the innovators, there's a chapter on this that he, he too, you know, uses Watson as the example, it will redefine interaction between man and machine. It will augment your and my decision making. It's not about replacement. And so we've gone on with it as an advisor doing work in financial services and particularly doing work in some of the uh, uh, help center, that kind of area. Then as well, something called the discovery engine, particularly in areas like pharma. So it's Sanofi, Johnson & Johnson, and its ability to discover relationships between things may end up being its killer app as well. So it's commercializing across all so of this. So when Watson won on Jeopardy, who got the proceeds, the victory? We do, we, he did, but we donated them to charity. Okay. Yes. So uh, today, do you think women are coming into IBM at a higher percentage, much higher than, than uh, when you joined? And what are you doing to get uh, women and other uh, people from diverse backgrounds into IBM? Mm. This is a very good question because um, Yes, they are coming in at great percentages, uh, but I think there's a, a very important difference of how to look at diversity in these days. Um, if I go back years, people would look at diversity and you would look at it by um, just different constituency groups, right? Having uh, different groups and you would call them out. Uh, and then we kind of move forward in time and I think you think of diversity as inclusion. Um, I think of diversity differently now. I think of it as about how do you engage a population no matter where they come from. And this to me is a really important point that, uh, so whether it's women, it doesn't matter, you know, really David, whether it's women or whether it's, you know, people from different countries in Asia, whoever it is, our jobs are to get them to contribute to what they do at work. And I, I, this is a, a really interesting role, I believe, social and mobile particularly social technologies, will play in a business setting. Uh, this idea to get people to engage, not just be a seat at a table, they have to engage. And what you see, and the reason I, I launch off when you say is it about just women, no, it's about getting everyone to engage, diverse population, get them engaged. And I look at the statistics and watch people's behavior. When you get a group of people on a, let's say my table here, and uh, we were all gonna just talk across the table at each other. Certain people will engage and certain people won't. I guarantee you, if I put this same group of people then in a social setting, a different set of people will engage it, with social right. technologies than they will face-to-face. -face. And I do think this idea that social and mobile in a company can be a great production engine of the future that will both add speed and it will really drive this idea of engagement, which is really a new definition of diversity. So looking a couple, five years or 10 years down the road, what do you think computers will be doing or companies like yours will be doing? What are the new devices we'll have or the new uh, abilities we'll have to, to, to make ourselves live better? Oh, look, I, I, this idea 
about um, big data, analytics. I think it will be with us in Watson. This is not a one-year, two-year. This is decades here about what's going to happen. And, and that's why, I, so what will it be exactly? I don't know, but I do know. I am absolutely convinced that this idea about augmenting our decision making and really information being what separates winners and losers is going to continue to just grow and grow and grow. Talk about cyber terrorism for a moment. Um, obviously, uh, to do cyber terrorism, you need to have good computer skills and so forth. Do you, are you confident that our skills in computers uh, and things related to that in the United States are better than any other countries? And do you think we are capable of defending ourselves against cyber terrorism? I, I you know what, I, in, I, um, I was just with a group of my own colleagues of uh, 50, 60 of them, and I gave a little 10-minute speech on security in cyber. And uh, this, is, this area is moving so fast. I say to in my own colleagues, whatever you do, you're not doing, you gotta keep doing more. It, it, it's not enough uh, because it is so sophisticated, right? I mean, uh, on one low end, last year, half a billion personal records were stolen. You know there's a complete underground that operates around this whole topic. And then at the worst end, nation states and others that have other different motives in place. So this, this topic, um, is one, there are basics. I kind of have kind of five basic things every company needs to do. Uh, but in addition, I think the most important thought about how to think about cyber, uh, cyber security, any form of cyber, is that I actually think of it as a big data and analytics problem. Because you in your mind have to get over and have a different paradigm about cyber security. I think today people think about how do I protect things. The analogy would be um, if you had a castle, you put a moat around it right. or your own home. You know, you have an alarm system on every door and every window. Uh, in fact, in, in, if I look at most companies, they even have a different alarm system on every door and window. I mean, this is not the best way to do it. And if you're loving this episode, please leave a review and comments down below. Because in real life, the issue is already inside. And so if you think about it, most... Um, uh, intrusions in a company, they've been there eight months before they're discovered. That is on average eight months before they're discovered. So you almost have to switch your analogy and think of cyber and think of security as an analogy of your immune system in your body. You have germs, we all have germs in our body, and uh, what your immune system does is it just watches they don't become too dangerous. And when they become dangerous, your immune system goes to them and stops them and cuts right. it off. That is the world of security we're going to live in. Right. It's going to all be about you know watching for tiny footprints in the sand long before. And that's why it's a big data analytics. That's why I think there's way more to be done in that area. And that's the kind of thing that you have to do. But one whole breath, people still don't do the basics, David. As, as, as sophisticated as the answer is on one end, uh, on the other end, there are really basics for companies in your home that people still don't do that really they need to do. And you know. I know for us and our employees, things like, um, do you continuously, I say, you know, raise the security IQ of your family and of your, of your employees. So we constantly, we train them, we test them, and then we try to trick them over and over again. Train them, test them, try to trick them. And I guarantee you, if you, if you try to do some, I guarantee you people are gonna, they're gonna inadvertently, because the number one cause of most issues in a company is internal, and often by accident. It's often by accident, and so that the way things get in. And so there are basics to do there. All the mobility, mobility is a great thing. This is one of the biggest things that part of the Apple partnership is all the end-to-end -end security. 
because mobility also opens doors otherwise. When you do emails, I assume you do emails from time I to do, time? I do, I do. Are they encrypted? Uh, it's, in some cases, they are. And in many, in, 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 for work, this is a really important point. IBMers, all of our mail is all handled in a way that is completely monitored and protected. So everybody who's got a device that many people, this idea called BYOD, bring your own device to work, um, many companies do it. My advice to everyone is you've got to, and what we do with our folks is every device, you kind of think of it, I just kind of literally think of it this way, that it's got a left brain and a right brain. Left brain, person's personal stuff. The right brain is your work stuff. I'm going to monitor and put a box around that, and I'm going to make sure what happens to it, and if something starts to happen, I, I clean it, I shoot it, I kill it, I, I've got to stop it. So it's this idea that you have to think that way about what these devices do and protect them. So we do it that way at work. We actually secure that now, stuff. Now, the U.S. government has been worried from time to time that Chinese computer companies are going to encrypt or put little uh, devices in, things they might send over here, but are you worried that the U.S. government might take IBM products and do things to them before they're shipped overseas, because there were reports of that happening to some other companies yeah. on IBM. Yeah, no, um, look, not at all in that uh, we have had a very, and this is what I attribute to being 100 years old, made very wise decisions along the way, recognize who you are, and know that what, why clients do business with us is because they, they know and they can trust that we will handle their data. So we have had policy positions for a very long time that we would never share data with a government, we would never give encryption keys to a government, we would never put back doors in our software, and so I can emphatically, no matter what government that would be, uh, can say that. So with all the employees you have, and you're in 170 countries around the world, on your typical day, I assume you start around 10 o'clock in the morning and uh, go to about 5 o'clock or something like day? that, right? 10 o'clock to 5 o'clock, yes. So you must, uh, I mean, what percentage of your time do you have to be traveling to keep this empire that IBM is kind of intact and show, you know, um, yourself to the troops yeah, and so forth? Yeah. How much of your time do you spend traveling? How much do you spend with clients? Oh, How much do you spend with government? Look, um, I, I probably do, you know, a third, a third, a third in that. Um, to me, you know, and again, this is going to sound, you have to really believe it, though, and your actions support it. I mean, the reason we exist is clients. And so I, fair, I do spend a fair amount of time with our clients because it is about what we do for them, right? And I never, never lose sight of that. And so clients, in this day and age, you've got government and issues around the world. You have investors and your people, right? Um, but clearly your people and clients up at the front end of that. Uh, and and I, I know when you talk about the scale, David, but, you know, I have been in the company for that time. I am quite used to that scale. And so to me, other things are daunting to other people. I think to many IBMers, it's not daunting. And because of the ability to have technology to connect, and we've run as a globally integrated enterprise, Sam did a great job globally integrating the enterprise, that um, people are quite used to how to work that way. And if anything, the technologies that are there today, they allow me to interact with everybody so fast and so flat. Um, you know, I say sometimes my job is the chief engagement officer, right? Not just the chief executive officer. And you're able to put questions out, get answers, get the dialogue. And, and that is a really positive product of the social and mobile so technologies. When, you, when it was announced that you were going to be the CEO of IBM, did you find all of a sudden you had a lot of friends that you didn't know you had before? Yeah. Did that happen a lot? People Everyone warned you? you about that, right? Yeah, and, yeah. And so, yeah. But how do you do it? I had a lot of friends before, too, though. But now yeah, everybody uh, tells I, you they, they're, 
<laughs> I like to think I did. <laughs> so what is the high, what's the greatest pleasure of being the uh, what's the greatest pleasure of being the CEO of IBM? What's the let's say the least pleasurable uh, part of the this job is easy other than to this me. kind of interview? You are not yeah, you know, this is um, the greatest pleasure for me is the impact that we are able to have in doing work that matters for the world. And whether that is I mean, I can't be prouder of the IBMers, whether it is the work they do with our clients or you know, last night we just made an announcement uh, working with Scripps Institute, the work that we're doing on Ebola, and it is about taking and allowing and enabling anybody who wants to dedicate time on their own personal devices into the worldwide community grid, so grid, so researchers can do work. Uh, you know, you can do it in three minutes. You can sign up, and when you're not using your device, researchers harness them together and they use it for their all of their research work on Ebola. Um, or whether it is the work that we have done, we did some great work recently in China on Green Horizons, on uh, prediction on weather and in a way to help uh, with the pollution and predict four, four days ahead what it's going to be. You can actually take, you know, and make changes in the environment to stop it and improve it. Uh, so it is work that matters for the world. And that's where I said, you know, healthcare. We will change the face of healthcare. So you are relatively new in your position. Um, and IBM CEOs often leave at a relatively young age. Lou <laughs> Gerstner left at a relatively young age. Uh, younger and younger every day as I think about that age. But um, um, would you ever consider leaving young a, at a young age and going to government service or something like that? Would you have any ambition to have another career outside of IBM or government so service? So I take it from your question, you think I am young. Very young. Yes, OK, thank you. Uh, I was just checking. Um, Look, I am a teenager by my standards. Yeah. <laughs> Look, I I am young in my tenure here, and uh, I've got you know a long runway ahead. So I, I don't even think about I, which I don't think is unusual, right? So I, a higher calling like private equity wouldn't appeal to you. <laughs> no. So I. I noticed IBM is often called Big Blue, um, and do you, do you wear blue often? Because no. that's not, that's not, that just, it's just. David asked me this earlier. He said, "Did you wear blue?" Because you know, big. I'm like, no, I wore it because it was next in my closet. I, I okay, didn't. Right, uh, yeah. I, I want to thank you very much for giving us a very enlightening uh, conversation about IBM, and thank you. Yeah, you're a great host. Let me give you a gift. I'm going to give you a gift. One second, okay?